If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts 22. We're going to pick up right where we left off last Sunday, Acts 22. If you're not familiar with the book of Acts, the book of Acts is it's sacred history. This is the history of the church and how it got started, this movement that we're all a part of, known as Christianity, this gathering that we call the Church of Jesus Christ. It started after Jesus rose and ascended and the Holy Spirit was poured out and a church started, a gathering. A church is not an organization, it's a gathering of people. And so God launched people into ministry, some of which were referred to as the apostles, and we are studying about the life of one of those apostles, the Apostle Paul. So we're going to pick back up Acts 22. I'm going to start in verse 22, and we're going to work our way into 23 today. <clears throat> Let's start in verse 22. Acts 22, verse 22. If you're there, say amen. amen. All right. Up to this word, they listened to him. And they're talking about the Apostle Paul. He's run into some trouble in Jerusalem. He's been arrested. The Jews are violently opposing this guy, the Apostle Paul, uh, mainly because the gospel he's preaching is undermining their religion and their traditions and their rituals and their laws. And so they are fed up with this guy, Paul, and he's been giving a defense of his ministry and, it, and Luke tells us that right up to that point, they listened to him. What point? It's the point at which he told them, Jesus showed up, he interrupted my life, and called me to the Gentiles or the non-Jewish people. And it's at that point that they are done listening to Paul. And it says, they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks... And flinging dust into the air, they are having a fit. Literally, they're taking off their shirts and going, and they're kicking up dust, right? They, they are throwing a tantrum here. They are, they are so mad at this guy. The tribune, or the local Roman commander, ordered, ordered him to be brought into the barracks saying that he should be examined by flogging. Uh, to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out, for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came to him and said, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. And the tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. And Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. I want to talk to you today. I want to ask a question. Is God still working when I don't see miracles? Is God still working when I don't see miracles? Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, be the teacher and the preacher today and encourage your people, encourage your church with your word and by your spirit and give us ears to hear. Help my tired voice from this cough and, and just give me strength today to proclaim the truth um, before your people. Um, I'm weak and I'm frail. I'm 
finite. My understanding is limited, but your word is eternal and powerful. And so let us all be transformed today as we hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me give a little bit of a preface to this sermon. I believe in miracles. In fact, I would go so far as to say one of the greatest longings in my heart today as a Christian, as a fellow believer with you, is to see the supernatural power of God work in greater measure in and through the church. And the reason I say that is because the more I read Scripture, the more I see a vital connection, vital connection between evangelism and miracles, signs, and wonders. There is a vital connection between miracles and signs and wonders. Why is that? Because the gospel we preach, listen to me, is not good news about past events that only have implication in future realities. The first announcement Jesus made was this. I've got good news. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's within reach. There is a present reality that is the kingdom of God that is ruled by King Jesus, that when we testify to that, God longs to confirm that message with miracles and signs and wonders. A personal relationship with Jesus is not like having an imaginary friend. He's really alive. He's really alive in us. He's really present, and His kingdom is at hand. And how many of you understand, in the kingdom of God, there is no sickness And so when the kingdom breaks in and a sick person is made well, we get a taste of that kingdom that is already but not yet. Okay? That's a sermon for another day. But I just want to preface by saying that today's message is not to say that miracles are not important because they are. Okay? And there is a holy and righteous longing that we should have for miracles. In fact, let me just point this verse out real quick. Back from Acts chapter 4. We studied this when the believers were threatened. They got together and they prayed. And look what they prayed in Acts 4, verse 29. It says, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. So they they understood the importance of speaking, of bearing witness, of testifying of Christ. But then look at this. While you stretch out your hand to heal And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So, the early church in Acts saw this vital connection between miracles and evangelism. Between miracles and the spread of the good news, the advancement of Jesus' church and the ministry of the apostles. So, just let that be a way of preface. But the question for today is, is God still working when I don't see miracles? Have you ever been... In one of those seasons where it just seems like the miracle that you need, maybe it's your obedience to Jesus that has led you to a place where you desperately need supernatural intervention from God, and it seems like the more you pray, the more hands-off God gets. Am I the only one that's ever felt that way? Like the miracle I need just isn't coming. And the question is, is God still working When we feel that way, well, here's what we know from Acts so far. Miracles have been rampant, right? I mean, Peter and John heal a lame man, and 3,000 people get saved. Philip, this is one of my favorite miracles, Philip gets supernaturally transported from one location to another. 
I want that spiritual gift. Right? I just want to be able to like say, okay, God, I need to get to Charleston. And you just, right? Somehow that happened. Right? You should read your Bible. It's really cool. There have been miraculous jailbreaks. Right? Peter prays for a lady named Dorcas and she comes back to life. There's just been miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle and thousands of people getting saved. But here's what I, as I lived in Acts 22 and 23 this week, you know what I noticed? Starting from verse 22 of chapter 22 all the way through chapter 23, there is not one mention of God of supernatural intervention, of the Holy Spirit, of spiritual gifts, or of miracles, signs, and wonders. The only thing that comes close to that, and we'll get to this in a minute, in chapter 23, verse 11, Jesus shows up to encourage Paul. We'll come back to that in a minute. He speaks to Paul, okay? But other than that, no miracles, no signs and wonders, no spiritual gifts, no mention of the Holy Spirit, not even, God's name is not even mentioned. Isn't that interesting? And yet this is one of the most difficult seasons Paul has ever been through. Now, Paul's been through a lot. He's been beaten. He's, he's been stoned. He's been persecuted. He's been reviled. He's even been in prison. In fact, one of the miraculous jailbreaks in the book of Acts was with Paul and one of his traveling companions named Silas, where God caused a localized earthquake to happen over the prison in the city of Philippi and miraculously set Paul and Silas free. So it's not like Paul is in unfamiliar territory, but what seems unfamiliar to me for Paul is that there's just no mention of supernatural intervention from God anywhere in this chapter. It's so interesting. So the question is, is God still working when we don't see miracles? Let's work our way through the story and see if we can understand it a little bit, okay? So where we left off last week, Paul has come to Jerusalem. The Jews are all stirred up against him, and he stands up and he gives a defense of his ministry, of his life. He mentions that he's been called by Jesus to the Gentiles, and the people go nuts. Like I said, they're, they're swinging their shirts, they're kicking up dust, they're having a fit, all right? And remember, this Roman commander who's referred to as the tribune, everybody say the tribune, that's how I'm going to refer to him from here on out. The tribune is trying to figure out what to do with this guy, Paul. What do I do with him? He can't understand why this Jewish mob is so stirred up against Paul, so he agrees to let Paul speak to them. But he quickly realizes that that's going nowhere. The mob's just going crazy, and he still can't make heads or tails of this guy, Paul. So here's what he decides to do. He decides, I'm going to beat the truth out of Paul. If I can't get it from the Jews, I'm going to flog him until he squeals. Now, Paul has been beaten before. He's been whipped before. He's been stoned before, but he has not been flogged. Roman flogging was horrific. If you know anything about it, they used an instrument called the cat of nine tails. It was a handle with nine leather straps that had pieces of bone, metal, 
and uh, glass affixed to the leather straps and it would literally turn people and their flesh into hamburger meat. It had a murderous quality to it almost unlike anything else and they're about to beat Paul until he talks. They get him stretched out, probably on a pole, maybe about the height of that cross. They get his hands up in the shackles. They strip him, and they're getting ready to flog him. And Paul turns around and says, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen? And the centurion, who's about to oversee the flogging, stops dead in his tracks. And the reason he does is because it was unlawful for a Roman citizen to be flogged without due process, without having been condemned or convicted of a crime. And he knows if I beat Paul and he is indeed a Roman citizen. Now it's one thing if he's just a rogue Jew. If he's a rogue Jew, the Romans have every right to interrogate by torture. But if he's a Roman citizen, they could end up getting flogged or crucified themselves. You follow me? All right. So he stops dead in his tracks and he goes and grabs the tribune. The tribune comes down and he says, Paul, are you a Roman citizen? Because imagine, Paul's already been beaten and punched and spit on by the crowd. He probably neither looks like a Roman or someone who could afford to buy a citizenship, which is what the tribune had done. Just a little anecdote. We learn in chapter 23, the tribune's name is Claudius, which means he was a Greek. And he says, I bought my citizenship at a great price, which in those days it was not uncommon to bribe a Roman secretary to get Roman citizenship. So he's probably bribed his way into being a Roman citizen. And he's looking at Paul going, you don't look Roman. And you certainly don't look like you could afford to buy it. But indeed, Paul's father was a Roman citizen. Paul is Roman by birth. So they stopped dead in their tracks afraid for their own lives, and the tribune decides, let's try another tactic. And here's the tactic he tries. Let's keep reading. Verse 30, chapter 22. <clears throat> so he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set them before him. So what's the council? The council is the Sanhedrin. And it was made up of Pharisees, everybody say Pharisees, and Sadducees, everybody say Sadducees, okay? Two important groups, political groups that formed this Jewish leadership council known as the Sanhedrin. The tribune says, y'all meet, we're going to bring Paul down, we're going to have a hearing, we're going to figure out what's going on. Verse 1, chapter 23. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers... I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. So Paul goes with the, I've got a clear conscience defense. Still no mention of God, right? See God anywhere? No, we don't see God anywhere, but Paul starts with a good conscience defense. Now that might not sound like a good strategy to you and I. But in Paul's day, the conscience was considered an independent witness of one's behavior. So this was a big deal that Paul says, look, everything I've done, everything I've said, I've done it per the instructions of Yahweh. He invokes the name, Yahweh God. And so how do they respond to that defense? Verse 2, and the high priest Ananias 
commanded those who stood by him to punch him in the face. Keith's in New York. He's not here today. But he would love that verse because he loves to talk about punching people in the face. They ordered Paul, they ordered the people standing around Paul to literally punch him in the face for doing the good conscience defense. Okay? Verse 3. Then Paul said to him, Paul's ticked. He just said, I got a clear conscience and people start beating him in the face and he's mad. And look what he says. God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you, sitting, are you sitting to judge me according to the law and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? So here's what's going on. The, Paul's Jewish citizenship is coming into play. Because under Jewish law, a Jew could not be punished without being condemned or convicted. And Paul's saying, look, you're, the, the very law that you're about to judge me by, you're violating because you punched me before you proved that I did anything wrong. Okay? And then watch what happens. Really awkward moment. Verse 4. And those who stood by him said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So Paul didn't know he was addressing the high priest when he said, you whitewashed wall, and that is also a violation. Paul doesn't want to violate the law himself. But watch what happens. Paul started with the, I've got a clear conscience defense. But now watch how he adjusts. Verse 6. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Now, the Pharisees are the aristocrats. They're the minority in the Sanhedrin, but they hold more power because they've got more money. And the Pharisees believed in the hope of resurrection. By this point, actually, some of the Pharisees had converted to Christianity. Okay? Because they believed in the resurrection. Now, they might not necessarily buy into Paul's gospel that you know, sort of eradicates the Jewish law and the temple and that would allow Paul to go and preach to the Gentiles, but some of them had actually converted. And Paul, Paul knows that. Paul's a wise guy. Now, the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection at all. They're the majority in the Sanhedrin, but they have less money, less influence, and they're Roman sympathizers. And there's no way a Sadducee could become a Christian because if they did, they would have to cease to be a Sadducee. They don't believe in the resurrection. And Paul says, here's why I'm here. It's because of the resurrection. And he's referring back to the defense he made earlier in 20, chapter 22 when he said, look, I'm a Jew. I'm a Pharisee. I kept the law. I was raised under the law. I was raised in Jerusalem. But Jesus met me. The resurrected Jesus met me and changed everything. And when Paul said that, this Sanhedrin goes into a tizzy. They start arguing with each other, right? Let's keep reading. Verse 7. And when he had said this, a dissension rose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. 
Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, oh, the poor tribune. He's still trying to figure out what in the world this guy Paul did. He said he was afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, so he commanded the soldiers to grab him and take him back to the barracks. Now, back to the barracks. Put yourself in Paul's shoes. Put yourself in his shoes. What are you thinking? Now, you've narrowly escaped flogging and beating and death with some political maneuvering, some clever arguments and statements that are all true. But now you're back at the barracks in a cold cell, beaten, bloody, cold, cringing. What are you thinking? If I'm in Paul's shoes, I'm thinking, you know what? It's been a good run, but it's probably about over. I'm done. You know, I've, I've, I've staved off flogging, but, you know, when, when Paul and Silas, when, when, we, when Silas and I were in prison back in Philippi, you know, the Lord showed up and caused an earthquake and set us free. I've had, I've had visions. I've had angels show up and, and tell me what to do next. I've, I've seen miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. And not only that, but let's remember what Jesus said to Paul when he was first saved. Look back with me at Acts chapter 9. It'll be on the screen. So the Lord speaks to Paul through this guy named Ananias. And here's what he says. He says, Paul is my chosen instrument to carry my name, watch this, before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. All but one has happened. He's testified to the Gentiles, hasn't he? He's testified to the Jews. Right? Has he suffered? He hasn't talked to kings. Not yet. He hasn't, his testimony has not made it to that upper echelon of government. And maybe Paul's thinking, you know what? Maybe that's just not gonna happen. Maybe I'm done. Call in the dogs, lower my expectations. I'm probably not going to make it out of this barracks. And then the only indication we get of the Lord's presence happens in verse 11. Let's read it. Verse 11 of chapter 23. The following night, the Lord, he's talking about Jesus, stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Now, Paul's always wanted to go to Rome. Read, read Romans chapter 1. He talks about how I long to come to you and preach the gospel and impart a spiritual gift to you. So Paul's always wanted to go to Rome. He always thought he would go to Rome. And Jesus shows up and says, look, Take courage, you're going to Rome. Now, this is one of those places in our Bibles where our English translations just don't 
get it. Luke says, the Lord stood by Paul. Come here, Bob. When you hear those words, what do you think? You doing all right, Bob? <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's not what's happening. The, the, the Greek language there is literally that Jesus' presence was enormous. Like he was huge for Paul. He overwhelmed Paul with his presence. And then he says to Paul, take courage. Now, that's weak because Jesus didn't show up like the good humor man and say, cheer up, Paul. This is literally, it's, it's, it's a word that when you look at it historically, it's the word we get our word constancy from. Jesus literally shows up, huge, overwhelms Paul and says, Paul, be constant. Stay with it. Don't quit. You're going to Rome. And I imagine, oh, I imagine that cold, dark cell lit up with the light of day. Like all of a sudden, a surge went through Paul's soul and his tired, weak, beaten body when he realized God's been working this whole time. I might not have seen it. I might not have seen an angel. I might not have felt an earthquake. I might not have seen prison doors fly open or shackles fall away. I might not have seen someone resurrected or healed in this moment. But here's what I know. God's been working this whole time and I'm going to Rome. God's not done with me. All of a sudden, it became clear to him. My history, the roots of my existence, God has been providentially ruling over. Don't you think that at some point Paul questioned his dual citizenship? Have you ever had a moment where you just looked at the circumstances in which you came into this world and you shook your head and you're like, God, why? Why was I born to these people? Why did you put me in this family? Why was I born in this place? Why, did we, why was I born into a family where we went through all this hardship? Why do I feel so torn? Why do I feel so split down the middle? Because one side of me and my roots is in this direction and the other side's in that. Am I the only one that's ever felt that way? Don't you know Paul questioned it, but don't you think that in that moment when Jesus said, you're going to Rome, all of a sudden, it made perfect sense. It was God's providence that I was born a Roman and a Jew. And then his pain and persecution. Imagine Paul's lip, fat and swollen. Imagine him with a black eye like you've never seen before and cuts and scrapes on his face from the punching that he took when he stood before the Sanhedrin. And all of a sudden it dawned on him. If they hadn't punched me, 
I wouldn't have changed my defense. I wouldn't have brought up the resurrection. And they might have killed me. The tribune might have figured it all out and they might have killed me right there. But Jesus has me on a trajectory to Rome. This trip to Jerusalem that everybody was begging me not to take because they saw trouble ahead. It's really just Jesus' way of getting me on to the last leg of this journey and this race that he's called me to run. I'm going to Rome and I'm going to speak to kings. It set the stage for what happened next. What happened next? Well, after the council goes crazy over Paul bringing up the resurrection, 40 Jewish zealots hatch a plot. And they take a vow. And they say, we're not going to eat or drink until Paul's dead. And here's their plan. They go to the Sanhedrin and they say, look, you go tell the tribune that you want another hearing and that you're going to settle this thing with Paul. And when they bring him out of the barracks down to the hearing, we're going to attack, we're going to ambush, and we're going to kill Paul. These guys are terrorists. They're terrorists, they're zealots. This is a suicide mission. They know they're not going to survive it, and they don't care. They're going to attack, and they know they'll be arrested and killed, if not killed on the spot for killing Paul, but they don't care. But Paul's nephew, did you know Paul had a family? This is the first and only mention of Paul's family. And apparently he had a sister, and his sister had a son. Paul's nephew gets wind of the plot somehow, goes to visit Paul and says, Paul, here's what's happening. They've hatched a plot. They're going to kill you when they bring you out of the barracks. And Paul says, you go straight to the tribune and tell him what you know. So he goes to the tribune and he tells him. And the tribune says, look, don't tell anybody you've told me this. And then here's what happens next. Look at verse 23 of 23. Chapter 23, verse 23. Then he, talking about the tribune, called two of the centurions. The centurions rule over a hundred soldiers apiece. And said, get ready, 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen, to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night and provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. Here's king number one. Paul's two years away from standing in front of Caesar. But his first stop, his first king, is going to be Felix the governor who occupies the office that Pontius Pilate once held when he condemned Jesus. And because of a plot that gets hatched to kill and ambush Paul, guess what? Paul gets a military escort in the middle of the night to go talk to the governor. I don't know if you got it. That's unbelievable. A military escort to speak to the governor. And in two years, he will stand before Caesar and testify of Christ. God wasn't done. And even though Paul couldn't see a miracle, couldn't see 
supernatural intervention from God like he might have expected based on past experience. God's providential hand was working in the natural circumstances of Paul's life to get him exactly where Jesus wanted him. Paul, stay with it. Be constant. Do you need to hear that? I need to hear it. I desperately need to hear it. Bradley, don't quit. Be constant. Because my purposes for your life, nobody is going to stop. I think there's some things we can learn from Paul. Because sometimes, sometimes I'm so busy looking for the miracle that I think I need that I miss, I miss seeing God's supernatural providence working through the natural circumstances of my life. So I want to give you three quick things. Three quick things that I hope will encourage you that you'll be able to apply from this story. Here's number one, okay? Number one. Write these down. You're not an accident. You are not an accident. You might love the circumstances that you were born into. You might hate them. You might have a love-hate relationship with them. You might have been raped as a child. You might have been the product of rape. But here's the truth. You're not an accident. You are here by divine appointment. But Bradley, you don't know what I was born into. It doesn't matter because here's what the Bible says, Psalm 139. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in the secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. It doesn't matter how bleak, how weak, or how freak the circumstances were or are that you were born into. Because here's what God's promise is to you, is that he's working all things together for good. The good of his purpose. So stay with it. Be constant. Don't quit. God's providential hand is over your life and mine, even in the circumstances to which we were born. It's number one. You're not an accident. Here's number two. Your present reality is not, it's not in chaos. Your present reality is not in chaos. Let that sink in. If you're a child of God, 
your present circumstances are not out of God's sovereign control. He's ruling over them. And you might feel like the whole world's against you. You might feel like the more you pray, the deeper and deeper the whole gets. But here's what we can learn from Paul, is that you might be pressed, but you're not crushed. You might be persecuted, but you're not abandoned. You might be struck down, but you're not destroyed. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Your life is not out of control. It's not. So it doesn't matter how bleak, how weak, or how freak your present reality is. God is working all things together for good, the good of his purpose. So be constant. Stay with it. His hand is working. Even when you don't see the miracle that you think you need, his hand is sovereignly ruling over your life. And if we would just lean into him and trust him, if we would just give in to his work, if we could just be like Paul in that prison cell when Jesus showed up big and said, Paul, be constant. And all of a sudden, I imagine him gaining strength in knowing. I'm, I might have felt like I was just along for the ride, but God was working this whole time. I'm going to Rome. He who began a good work in you will be Say it. Faithful to complete it. If he's called you his own, he will finish what he started. And sometimes we make that harder on ourselves than it has to be. <laughs> Maybe I'm the only one that's ever done that. <clears throat> I make his work harder because I, I push back. I have my own reasoning and logic sometimes God just has to show up and say look Bradley stand still and trust me let me work let me finish what I've started which leads me to number three we're not accidents our present circumstances are not out of God's control and here's number three God's not done with us if you're still breathing, everybody take a deep breath. If you're still breathing, God's not done. He's not done. He's still, you're still His instrument. And you might feel like, look, there's no way, when I look into my future, there's no way that I can see God using me from where I'm at now. There's no way I could see God doing anything of value in and through my life because of where I was born and where I find myself now. But here's what I think we can learn from Paul is that it doesn't matter how bleak, how weak, or how freak your future looks from where you are right now. If you're still breathing, God's not done. Don't wave the white flag. Don't call in the dogs. Don't lower your expectations. Be constant. 
stay with it because he's working all things together for good. The good of his purpose. So stay with it. Because even when you don't see the miracle you're looking for, God is still working. I am so thankful. This is in our Bibles. I'm so thankful. I need to see somebody like the Apostle Paul, who's a man just like me, a human being just like all of us, walking through this, trusting the providence of God to work all things together for good. I think when we get a hold of that, it's what brings us to the point of praising without ceasing. Of like the scriptures talk about giving thanks in all circumstances and for everything, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. There might be some of you in this room this morning that you can't imagine giving thanks for where you are right now. You can't imagine giving thanks for the circumstances to which you were born into or to the future that you see ahead on the horizon. But can I tell you, as a child of God, you have reason to give thanks because our God is sovereignly working. So we can be constant. We can stay with it. Amen. I wonder if you'd join me on your feet and let's just begin to praise the Lord for that truth, that we can stay with it. Would you lift your hands and just begin to praise Him? Can we just thank Him that it doesn't matter where we are, where we've come from, or where it seems like we're going, our God's in control. Come on, let's just let our voices be the instruments right now. Join the instruments right now in praise. Begin to give Him thanks. Because He's faithful. Come on, isn't he faithful? Hasn't he been good? Isn't he trustworthy? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also give us all things? Blessed be his name. Oh God, we thank you this morning that you are faithful. There is no shadow of turning in you. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's not cliche. That's scripture. That's the word of the living God. That's who you are. And Lord, for those that are here this morning that they feel like they can't see you, they feel like you become hands-off, would you do the same thing you did for Paul, for all of us this morning? Would you be enormous in this place right now? Would you be huge? Would you overwhelm us with your presence and say to us, be constant. Stay with it. Don't quit. Because I'm not done with you. Do that, I pray, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name.